Take your copy of the Word of God and open it with me to the Gospel of John. We started our new series a few weeks ago. We're still in John chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 10. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. 31 years ago, George H.W. Bush was president of the United States, and he visited an elementary school in Alexandria, Virginia. While there, he went from one class to the next class, introducing himself, talking to the children, answering their questions. As you can imagine, all of these little boys and girls were very excited about having the President of the United States not only in their school, but in their individual class. Everybody was excited, except for one little boy, eight years old. His name was Anthony Henderson. He wasn't too excited about the president's visit because he was not convinced that President Bush was really President Bush. And with all sincerity of heart, this little eight-year-old boy stared at the president and said, how do we know that you're really the president? Our principal loves to dress up like famous people. He does it all the time. How do we know that you're not him? And so the president of the United States pulled out his wallet and his Texas driver's license, and he said, look, right here, B-U-S-H, Bush. That's me. I'm the president. Well, he still wasn't convinced. So this time he pulled out his credit card. He said, look. There's my name. I'm the president. Well, that didn't work either. Finally, the president took this little eight-year-old boy over to the window, and he pointed outside, and he said, Do you see that limousine? I came here today in that limousine. Only the president of the United States would ride to this school in that car. And that finally persuaded him that he was talking to the president. It's kind of funny to us that the president was not recognized by a little boy. But listen, 2,000 years ago, something else happened. Someone else was not recognized, and it was not a laughing matter. Jesus, who was in the beginning, Jesus, the Word, the Word who was with God and who was God, the one who created everything that was made he came from heaven to earth. He came to those whom he created, and he was not recognized by them. And yet, this is the reason why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins, but he also came so that we could know God and know God personally. You know, it's one thing to know things about God. It's another thing to know him on a personal level. Maybe some of you here today, if you were brutally honest, you would say, yes, I know things about God. Yes, pastor, I've heard different stories. I've heard some sermons. Uh, you may even know a couple of verses, but if you were really honest, you would have to say that you do not know God personally. 
In our scripture this morning, I want us to talk about the God who can be known. How anyone can know God. We're going to see a couple of things that Jesus did in order to make this possible. I believe that this passage, albeit very short, is one of the clearest uh, gospel statements that you will find in all of the Bible. It's like the entire message of the Bible being summarized in just these four verses. So let's look at our passage starting there in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I tell you, each word in that passage is just so full of power and meaning. There's so much we could say. But I want to emphasize two things in this text that Jesus did, two things about our Lord. First of all, I want you to notice the rejection Jesus experienced. John begins this short passage by talking about the rejection that Jesus experienced. And according to John, there are two groups of people that he mentions who rejected Jesus upon his coming to this world. Notice again in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. First of all, Jesus was rejected by the world. And when it says the world did not know him, he's referring to the people in the world. Now, this statement, the world did not know him, it is 100% true, and it's also 100% absurd all at the same time. It really is kind of absurd. It's a, it's a crazy thought that the word who created the world would come into the world, but not be recognized or known by the world. That would be like if Dan Marino bought a ticket to a Dolphins game and sat in the stands, in the middle of the stadium, surrounded by fans, and somehow bought a ticket, sat down, watched the game, and left, and not a single person recognized him knowing who he was. Can you imagine that? No. Well, folks, how much more absurd was it that Jesus came to this world, and yet John says, the world did not know him. Well, the world did not know him, but we think to ourselves, well, surely his own people will know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own, which means he came to Israel. Even they did not receive him, even though they had the temple, even though they had the synagogues, even though they had all of the traditions, even though they had the priesthood, even though they had the scriptures, even though they had all of the prophecies, even though Jesus came and did everything and was everything that the scripture said the Messiah would be, 
of the tribe of Judah, a son of David, born in Bethlehem, performed miracles, all of this, and so much more. And yet, in spite of that, we are told, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And the clear implication in this passage is that the world and Israel should have known him and received him. I mean, let's face it, the winds recognized Jesus when he spoke and they were calm. The waves recognized Jesus when he spoke and the storm ceased. The demons recognized Jesus when he spoke and cast them out. All of creation recognized him except for people. And so the big question we have to ask when we read this is, why not? Why didn't they recognize him? It's not because they could not. As we will see, it is because they would not. Hear me very carefully. Their unbelief was a willful unbelief. Now, this wasn't anything new. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3. He said this, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. Why not? My people do not consider. Now, this was a choice. Israel made that choice. The world made that choice. And let's be honest, at one point, all of us made that choice as well. Man does not seek God because man is in rebellion against God. Jesus said later on in John chapter 3 that men actually choose darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. One man, William Lane Craig, uh, an apologist and an author, uh, I love this statement that he made. He once said, man does not find God for the same reason that a bank robber does not find the police. Well, that's true. Man doesn't find God for the same reason a bank robber doesn't find the police. The bank robber does not find the police because he does not want to find the police, and he's doing everything he can to avoid finding police. Folks, that is why the world did not know him. His own did not receive him. And so Jesus was rejected. And if you've been rejected, let me tell you, Jesus knows Jesus understands. Maybe some of you are there right now. Hurts, doesn't it? Maybe you applied for a job and you were rejected. Maybe you tried to get into a school and you were rejected. Maybe you shared the gospel with someone and you were rejected. Maybe you expressed your love for someone and you were rejected. You know what? We all experience the sting of rejection at some point. And if that's you or when you're there, let me remind you, Jesus has been there too. And he took that. He experienced that rejection for you and for me. The very fact that Jesus did that, the fact that Jesus came to this earth to save us anyway, knowing that we would essentially slam the door in his face, that tells us how much he loves us he loves us so much he was willing to come and walk in our shoes and experience everything that we experience, including rejection. And everything Jesus went through, by the way, he went through so that one day we could have the opposite. 
He walked on dusty roads so we could walk on streets of gold. He wore a crown of thorns so that we could wear a crown of glory. He suffered so we could be healed. He died so we could live. And he was rejected. Why? So that we, through his rejection, could be accepted by God. And that leads to the second part of this passage. And we're going to spend a little bit more time here. But in these verses, John shows us the rejection that Jesus experienced. But we also see in this the acceptance Jesus offers. The acceptance Jesus offers. Good news is, even though the world did not know him and his own did not receive him, you can know him and you can receive him. Look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. There's so, so much in just this one Verse, And so I kind of want to talk about each part of it. But notice at the very beginning, as many as received him. Uh, as many as, meaning everyone can. Anyone who is willing to call upon him can receive him. And John says, as many as received him. He uses that verb receive because that is what you do with a gift. You receive a gift. And salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 calls it the gift of God. Romans 6.23 says the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when someone offers you a gift, you have two options. You know that you can receive that gift or you can reject that gift. But how do you receive this particular gift that John is talking about. How do you receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? How do you receive a person who was born and lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago? I mean, you know what to do. You know how to receive that Christmas gift. You know how to receive that birthday present. But how do you receive this gift? Well, John tells us. You believe in his name. To those who believe in his name. And I want you to notice something about that statement at the end of verse 12. That word believe, it is the verb form of the word faith. Now, I have to stress this because in the Gospel of John, he actually never uses the word faith as a noun. In the Gospel of John, every single time this word faith appears, it is always a verb. But pastor, faith is not a verb in English. Well, I know, but it is in the Greek. And this is exactly what he's saying. You faith Jesus. Those who faith in his name. That's literally what the text says. So it means to place your faith in him. Now, in Bible days, a person's name represented their character, and that's still true today, but it was especially true back in Bible days. So to believe in someone's name, like John is saying here uh, in, in verse 12, to believe in someone's name means to believe in them personally. In this case, it means to trust 
in Jesus by faith. It means you believe by faith that he is who he claimed to be, the I am, the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life. It means you believe by faith that he did what he said he would do, that he died and he rose again on the third day. To believe in his name means that you believe by faith that he will do what he promised to do, that he will save whosoever shall call upon his name, whosoever believes, whosoever receives him as Lord. Now, this statement in verse 12, it is so simple as he describes how a person can receive Christ, how a person can be saved If you just look at verse 12, if you understand what John is saying in verse 12, let me tell you, you will never be tempted by a message of works-based salvation. Because John tells us how we receive this gift of eternal life and become children of God. He mentions nothing about human merit. He mentions nothing about our behavior, nothing about us earning it or having to deserve it. No, he said you receive him by believing in his name. But what happens to those who receive him who believe in his name? Notice that middle statement in verse 12. He gave them the right to become children of God. He gave them the right. Please understand, John is not saying that everyone is a child of God. Someone every now and then will say, oh, well, you know, we're all God's children. Well, no, that's not what the Word of God says. Every person you meet is God's creation. Every person you meet is made in God's image, and therefore they're worthy of dignity and respect. But no, not everyone is a child of God. It says those who receive him, to them God gives the right to become children of God. Children of God. That means you have a new status. That means you're no longer an enemy of God. You're no longer separated from God. You are part of God's family. And when John says God gave them the right to become children of God, you know, that that word right, it usually translates authority. There's some authority that actually comes along with you being a child of God. And let me just give you an illustration. When Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States in 1861, at that time, his son, Tad, was only eight years old. And every historian who writes about Abraham Lincoln and who writes about his family and talks about his little boy, Tad, all of them will tell you that his son, Tad, was spoiled rotten. And that when Tad uh, was in the White House, he basically had the whole White House as his personal playground. And he did not mind using it as such. Uh, He had permission to go into any room at any time, even when Abraham Lincoln was meeting with his cabinet, even when he was managing the Civil War and he was meeting with his military leaders. Even then, Tad had permission, and he would take advantage of that permission and walk right in to any room with his friends, with his pets, 
It drove everybody in the White House crazy, except for Abraham Lincoln, because that was his son. And by virtue of being the president's son, he had the authority to go wherever he wanted in the White House. Well, guess what? John says being a child of God gives us authority. You say, what authority do we have as children of God? Well, the authority to come boldly before the throne of grace and to know that we can enter into God's court at any time and that He will hear us and respond to us when we pray. We have the authority to boldly proclaim the gospel on God's behalf. We have the authority to lay claim to the promises of God, to every child of God. We have authority over the devil, over demons, over the kingdom of darkness. We have all of this authority and so much more. But there's something else about this 12th verse that I want you to notice before we go on. I want you to notice there are three key verbs in verse 12, received, as many as received him, gave, he gave to them the right to become children of God, and believe those who believe in his name. Received, gave, believe. These three verbs all have something in common. You know what they have in common? In the original language, they are all in the aorist tense. And some of you might be thinking, well, pastor, what does that mean? And why should I care? Well, the aorist tense means something that happens in a moment. Something that is not a process. Something that does not take place slowly over time. Something that happens at once. And in verse 12, John uses that kind of verb every single time. In other words, there's a moment in which a person receives him. They receive Jesus. There's a moment in which you faith him, you believe in his name. There's a moment in which you become a child of God. John does not say, if you believe, and if you keep on believing, and if you believe long enough, then maybe, eventually, in the future, perhaps, one day, you will become a child of God. It's not what he says. It happens in a moment. There's that song that we sing every now and then to God be the glory. My favorite part of that song is the verse that says, the vilest offender who truly believes. You remember what comes next? That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. It comes in a moment. I don't think John ever got over that moment in which he became a child of God. Years later, he was an old man. He wrote these words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. He said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. All these years later, he still hasn't gotten over it. I haven't either. 
Let me ask you then, are you a child of God? Has there been that moment when you said, I'm receiving this gift right now? I'm placing my faith in Jesus, the one who died for me and rose again. And if so, if you are a child of God, then I would just ask, are you living like a child of God? Can the world see that in your speech and your actions and your lifestyle? Are you living as a child of God and that you're taking advantage of the blessings and the privileges and the rights that belong to you as a child of God? You know, we read verse 12 and it just, it's so simple how a man or woman must respond to Jesus. But I want you to notice when we get to this next verse, verse 13, John also wants to remind us that salvation is 100% the work of God. So in verse 12, he talks about our response to the gospel. But verse 13, it's really the same sentence. It's the second half of the sentence that began in verse 12. It's like the other side of a coin. Notice what verse 13 says. Who were born, referring to those who receive Jesus and believe Jesus. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. First of all, notice that word, born. There's a birth, a spiritual birth that takes place in that moment a person receives Jesus and places their faith in him. Now, we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 3, that famous conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again. But notice we are born into God's family. Birth is not something that can be undone. Birth is permanent. Once you've been born, there's nothing you can do to then go back and be unborn. Well, this is true physically. It's true spiritually as well. And John tells us in this verse, some things that do not produce this birth, three things. And then he tells us at the end of the verse, what does produce this new birth. Notice he says, who are born not of blood. We're not born of blood. What does he mean by that? Well, he's referring to your physical family, the family into which you were born. And he said that because there were many people who believed that salvation was just automatic by virtue of being born into Israel, by being a son of Abraham. You remember what John the Baptist said, Luke 3, Matthew 3, you're sons of Abraham? He said, big deal, God can turn these rocks into sons of Abraham. In other words, it's you don't get into heaven by virtue of being a son of Abraham. You don't get into heaven because your mother was saved or your father was saved. No, you must be saved. You have godly grandparents. Praise the Lord. What about you? You have a godly father, a godly mother. Man, that's wonderful. What about you? He says that we are born not of blood. Then he says, nor of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's not the result of all of your fleshly efforts. No amount of works that you can do with your flesh that will earn you salvation. And so understand the message of the gospel is not do better. The message of the gospel is not try harder. The message of the gospel is receive him and believe. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh. Then he said, 
not of the will of man. This refers to one's heart. Now, I want to clarify one thing because I hear verse 13 used sometimes to suggest that a person has no free will at all. And John 1.13 is always the verse someone uses to make that point. John is not saying that you do not have a free will or that your will is not in any way involved. He's saying your will is not what produces this new birth. Let me give you an example. It may seem like a rather silly example, but it's the the best I could uh, think of. And it happens to be the earliest memory that I have. I mean, I can't think of anything in my life that happened before this. My earliest memory is probably when I was four years old. And as a four-year-old boy, it's funny, I I don't know why. I remember this like it was yesterday. What I wanted more than anything else was to fly like Superman. I wanted it so bad. And I remember thinking that if I just used my will, I could make it happen. And so attached to my grandmother's house, there was a porch. I climbed up on the porch, and then I climbed up and I stood on top of the rails of the porch, and I looked down on the ground below. I kid you not, I closed my eyes, and I said to myself with all of my might, kind of like Peter Pan, you can fly, you can fly, you can fly. And then I jumped and fell straight to the ground. Now, fortunately, I did not break any bones. But you know what I did? I got up, I was like, ow, that hurt. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? Of course I can't fly without wings. And so I ran inside Grandma's house. I got a pair of scissors and a couple pieces of paper. And quickly, I cut out a couple of paper wings. And I got back on top of that porch and tried it again, flapping my little paper wings. And, of course, had the same result. You're thinking, Pastor, you were not a very smart kid, were you? (laughs) Um, I would just point out, none of you were doing calculus at age four either. So there is that. (laughs) But listen... When John said, who were born not of the will of man, that doesn't mean that you do not have a will. John is saying it is not the power of your will that produces this new birth. If it were not for Jesus, if it were not for his death on the cross, if it were not for his burial and resurrection, if it were not for the call of the Holy Spirit inviting you, beckoning you to come to Christ and be saved, If it were not for grace, you could exercise your will all you wanted to. And by your will, you would not be able to produce this new birth. You'd be like that four-year-old version of me, standing on the porch, saying to yourself, I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. And then you leap and fall straight into hell. It's not the power of your will. It's the power of God. It's the power of the cross. That's why John says at the end of verse 13, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Only God can bring this new birth about. Only God has that power. Only God can transform you from the inside out. 
Only God can take your sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. Only God can turn you into a new creation. Only God can give you that new beginning that you so desperately need. And he promises to do that. For whosoever will receive him and believe in his name. 2,000 years ago, the world did not know him. His own did not receive him. But you can. There's a famous author named J.I. Packer. God called him home not too long ago. But J.I. Packer wrote a famous book called Knowing God. If you have not read it, I highly recommend it. It's a powerful book. But in this book called Knowing God, he makes the following statement. He said, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on forever. There's no peace like the peace of knowing God and being known by him. You know what? He's right. I promise you, there's nothing like it. And that peace God offers to you and to me today. Do you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you were willing to send your only begotten Son into this world knowing that the world would not know him, that his own would not receive him, knowing that he would be rejected not only in life, but upon the cross. And we thank you that you loved us enough and that Jesus loved us enough that he was willing to experience that rejection so that we could be accepted so that simply by receiving him, by faith in his name, we can be called children of God. Oh, how we thank you for that. And that it's not based on our works. It's not based on anything we have done or could ever do. It's not about our performance. God, because we all fall short. It's all about Jesus. So, God, we thank you for that. Father, I pray for those, first of all, who may be here right now who have never experienced that moment in which they place their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that moment in which they simply received him. And, God, how I pray that that moment for them would be even now. God, I pray that they would give up any pretenses of being able to make themselves good enough to be presentable before you, any pretense of, of working for their salvation, of, of trying to earn it or deserve it. God, I pray for just a spirit of brokenness that they would say, God, I've blown it. I can't do it, but Jesus did. And I pray that this would be that moment in which they simply receive him and that in this moment you would make them a child of God. Father, I pray for each one of us here today and, and those that know Christ, that we would uh, apply this to our lives, that we would live like children of God, that that would show up 
in every part of our lives, in our attitude, in our speech, in our actions, our works, how we treat others, especially uh, those who are in need, the ones Jesus called the least of these. Father, that in every part of our lives, in our marriages, in our homes, the way we treat our parents, the way we treat our children, Father, that in every area of our lives, it would be evident that there is something different about us because we have been made sons and daughters of God. God, we thank you, Lord, uh, for all of these things that we've learned today. and Help us to apply these things now. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.